Whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you are producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com, the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. I am unwilling to give up. That I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden, and I'm here at the Kara Golden Show. I am so excited to have my next guest here, Danny Warshe, and he is the author of an incredible book, called See, Solve, Scale, but he's also the executive director of the Nelson Center for Entrepreneurship at Brown University. He is just an incredible, very inspiring teacher, leader, now author. I got a copy of his book that he wrote a few months back, and it is absolutely amazing. And this is coming from an operational entrepreneur who's seen it all. I really, really believe in everything that he's talking about. So See, Solve, Scale is sort of the short title for this book, and we'll get into that quite a bit more. But he shares 
that entrepreneurship is not a spirit or a gift restricted to business elites, but is rather a process that is open to anyone willing to learn. So based on his beloved course at Brown, which you will uh, recognize many of the people, hopefully he'll share some stories about some of those people, which he shares in the book as well, that have taken this course, basically turns the stereotype of an entrepreneur on its head and teaches people from all walks of life, all different industries or interests more than anything by the time they get to Brown, how to unlock the power of entrepreneurship. So during a time when millions of Americans are leaving their jobs and rethinking things, Seasoft Scale really holds some really, really key insights. So prior to being recruited to teach at Brown, by the way, Danny was a serial entrepreneur. So I think it's so great to actually have somebody who has had operational experience be uh the teacher of the class because he's uh, been in it and can think from that perspective. So without further ado, Danny, welcome. Thank you so much, Kara. Boy, if, if I could uh, start my afternoon every day with that kind of a pep talk, <laughs> I, I would I would love to do that. And very high praise coming from you, who is someone who is also uh, an extraordinary entrepreneur and also an author and um, media personality and uh, teacher in your own right. So Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Okay, so the million dollar question to start off. You ready? Just a million? Just a million, right? A billion, right? We'll change that. All right, that sounds good. Can entrepreneurship be taught? You know, I always always love that question. I also think it's a little bit um, humorous. I know you're saying it a little bit with tongue in cheek because I've been teaching entrepreneurship at Brown and around the world for about 17 years. And so I always wonder, well, I certainly hope it can be. Otherwise, what would I be doing for the past 17 years? Yeah, it, it is a, it's a fair question. You mentioned briefly this uh, phrase, entrepreneurial spirit. I'm sure many of your listeners have heard that. I remember when I was asked to teach at Brown by a beloved professor of mine, um, I had to even wonder, can I teach something? I had never taught anything. Uh, but then I wondered, what does it mean to teach entrepreneurship? And I realized, well, surely it cannot be that I'm being asked to teach a spirit. Uh, what, what would that mean? My faculty position, I'm a professor technically in the engineering school. Brown doesn't have a business school. And we can get into why I feel that that's been a, a real advantage. Uh, but I thought, you know, could you imagine if we were to teach somebody how to build a bridge? You wouldn't just say, go out there and have the bridge building spirit. And if the uh, you throw up a bridge and it collapses and the trucks and the cars just fall down to earth, you wouldn't say, just go out there and have more bridge building spirit. That would be crazy. We wouldn't be um, trusted to teach anything. And yet I found as I was thinking about how do you teach entrepreneurship in dominantly a liberal arts environment like Brown, people were saying, you know, it's about entrepreneurial spirit. And I said, no, it can't be that. And I realized, well, in bridge building, you can distill some fundamental principles that every bridge has in common. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the process of bridge building, leaving lots of room for variation of all kinds, uh, operational, aesthetic, functional. And I thought there must be a similar kind of approach that I could take to teach a process of entrepreneurship where we could distill some fundamental principles 
that every startup venture holds in common, again, with lots of room for variation depending on the venture, whether it's a beverage company or a social enterprise or um, a fintech or edtech or health tech company. And, and that's where the title of the book comes from. It's where the methodology that I've been teaching at Brown and in I teach workshop versions in companies and startups uh, for PE and venture capital firms, for nonprofits, government entities, um, all sorts of contexts around the world. And the definition that I devised all those years ago for entrepreneurship is a structured process for solving problems without regard to the resources currently controlled. And I know that's How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. 
Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. A mouthful and we could take a whole semester and I do to unpack that. But the uh, crystallized version is these three steps in this book that I wrote. Uh, C solve scale. What What's the problem? Uh, how are you going to solve it on a small scale iteratively? And then how are you going to... Uh, scale that solution so that you can have big, significant impact at scale. I'm so curious, what percent you, obviously, you mentioned that this course is in the engineering school. So what percent of the students are actually engineers? That's the funny thing. You know, very few. Um, You know, Brown has a good reputation for being very interdisciplinary. And that's true at our center. Uh, It's true in my courses. The uh, students represented in the course come from every discipline, every concentration, every major. They study all different kinds of things. They come from all different kinds of backgrounds uh, in terms of ethnicity and nationality, races, uh, religions, genders. And um, that's the secret that I talk a lot about and that I emphasize throughout the book in terms of the successful team formation for successful ventures is diversity. And then we can also talk about the companion inclusion. But to answer your question, there are some engineers, certainly. It's just by virtue of the fact that Brown needed to place me somewhere and that there was a little bit of tradition in terms of teaching uh, these kinds of principles at Brown from that same professor who had reached out to me, Barrett Hazeltine, that they put me in engineering. But I don't know anything really about engineering. Uh, My father was a PhD chemical engineer, and he always thought that it was funny that I was technically an engineering professor, but 
Really, I'm an engineer. I'm a uh, entrepreneurship professor. Well, and I think it really just speaks to entrepreneurs can come from anywhere. So yeah. it's uh, you know they're not all business majors. Uh, and no, in fact, as I say, Brown doesn't even, as you know, because yeah. your daughter goes to Brown, and our daughters are roommates, uh, which is how we originally got to know each other. But uh, you know, Brown doesn't have a business school, and. I went to Harvard Business School, and most of my career I've spent in business. I worked at Procter & Gamble for a little while in the food sector, in brand management. Mostly I've spent my business career launching startups. Even when I was at Brown, I was a history concentrator. I'm a big proponent of liberal arts as a foundation for anything you might like to do, but especially entrepreneurship. And I fell into helping to uh, lead a software startup that was launching uh, my senior year. And we built that up with some support from Brown. I did an independent study with that same professor who later asked me to teach. And we uh, eventually sold that company to Apple. This was in the late 80s. And, and I have to clarify with students our daughter's age that there were actually computers in the late 80s. Um, but but the idea that we don't have a business school, I think, does illustrate one of the principles I teach in the book, which is the benefits of scarce resources. Mm -hmm. And that especially early in the launch and trajectory of a venture or a startup of any kind, it benefits you to have some constraints, not to have abundant resources. And I talk about that with respect to some of the ventures that you alluded to before that have launched successfully from the course uh, and from my students. And so for us, the idea that we don't have a business school pigeonholing us or narrow, narrowly defining entrepreneurship as you know a business incubator means that we can expand the definition the way that I mentioned before and therefore attract a very wide range of students who by nature tend to come to Brown because they're interested in solving problems and improving the world. And now we're providing them this structured methodology, C-Solve Scale, which is the basis of my teaching and now the basis of what we teach more broadly at the Nelson Center. And as you generously point out, is the title of my book. So you mentioned resources, and I loved that point in the book, uh, or rather how a lack of resources can, may actually be a super great thing. Can you talk a little about that and how uh, you've seen that maybe even with some of your students that have gone on to build great companies. Yeah, happy to. And and I love that because it's like several of the key principles in my teaching or in the book or about what we espouse at the Nelson Center that tends to be counterintuitive. In fact, there are 11 cautions that I articulate. You may remember those mm -hmm. throughout the book which are cognitive biases that we as humans just naturally have. Nothing wrong with us. It's just the way our brains tend to work, where we think things are cer a certain way. And then you, as I share the research, realize that they're actually the opposite. And I know the bias of many people is that you need to be um, flush with lots of resources of all kinds. Uh, you have to know a lot about a topic in order to dive into it as an entrepreneur. You're actually a good example, right? You were a tech executive and you pivoted to being a food and beverage ex uh, entrepreneur and were super successful. And it might have been because you actually weren't biased 
by the ways you were supposed to start a beverage company. A good example of, so the, the two principles are the benefits of scarce resources, where the fact that you may know less, may not be trained as well, maybe you don't come from a certain background, maybe you uh, have much less money and financial resources. In the early stages of a venture, I demonstrate how you're much better off because you're not biased, you're not tied to a certain way of doing things that you might be if you were flush with abundant resources. You might not be then as conservative to protect those resources as you might be if you were in a well-established company. Casper Mattress is a really good example, uh, started by two students of mine, Luke Sherwin and Neil Parikh. I like to say that they knew nothing about the <laughs> mattress industry. The only thing they knew is that you sleep on a mattress <laughs> and that the way you buy a mattress just didn't make any sense to them. You have to go to a showroom. You have to lie on a mattress in the middle of this showroom with everybody watching, having a salesperson breathe down your neck, looking for a big commission. You had to have the thing shipped to your house in an awkward way. You had to commit to it, you know, uh, many hundreds of dollars uh, purchase when you really aren't sure of whether it's going to be for you. Uh, and then there's no way to return it if you're unsatisfied. Well, Luke and Neil and his uh, co-founders turn the entire way you buy uh, and commit to a mattress completely on its head. They had no money. They had no uh, experience launching a company like this. At the time the book was published in March, they were doing over $400 million in sales. Um, they had gone public as a public company. They had raised uh, several hundred million dollars in venture capital. And they had completely revolutionized the way that you would buy a mattress. And that's true among lots of the students coming out of my course or ones that uh, having learned the Seesaw scale method are embarking on doing things when they, not, they may not be the obvious contender. Uh, ben Chesler, who started, was my student and started Imperfect Foods is another good mm -hmm. example. Um, Emma Butler, who's more recently started a, an adaptive clothing company for disabled women, uh, you know, no kind of traditional background, not even close to having, you know, a business training background, but, but took my class. She, she likes to say that she was visibly shaking when she walked into my class because she thought here she was a visual arts and French concentrator at Brown no prior experience, but realized, hey, just as Danny says, this see-solve scale method is something that she could learn, she could master it, and then she could apply it to a really consequential problem that 600 million women around the world are facing. They're disabled and they are facing challenges of being able to dress themselves um, in conventional clothing. And so Liberare, the company that she started with help through this process and through our center is now starting to scale and do an amazing job of addressing that fundamental problem. So that is, that's one of the most surprising insights. And I share other examples in the book, as you recall, that you don't have to have abundant resources. In fact, if you have abundant resources, for example, the incumbent mattress companies, they were worse off mm -hmm. because they had an established distribution channel, supply chain, brand, way of doing business that they were trying to protect. 
And even though you might have thought, gee, they would have been the best group to innovate in that industry. No, it took two Brown students who knew nothing about the industry to do that uh, in a way that reflected their scarce resources, not their abundance. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I thought of two things when I was reading that. First, you know, sometimes resources can actually fool you too, because you use it in ways that maybe you're going to acquire customers, but you are not necessarily going to have a customer that's sticky, right? You're going to go out and get somebody and then, you know, maybe give them a great deal. Maybe uh, you've got all this cash that you can go out and do that, but, you know, they're not going to stay with you. And I think that that's where it can really, you can really run into problems with it. And then the other thing that I thought of, you know, people will come up with reasons why they can't do something. Yes. And and resources is sort of the, you know, the number one thing that I hear from entrepreneurs that I talk to that I'm like, look, you need to make sure that you really believe because if you don't believe, no one else will, so you shouldn't even bother going out to get resources. I mean, resources can You're mean absolutely a few different right. things, but I mean, and you know that very well as an experienced entrepreneur. It's one of the challenges that I see quite often, which is that even If you start with some clarity about the problem you're solving, Mm -hmm. and I don't assume you would, I teach you how to do what I call bottom-up research, which was influenced from the consumer branding training I got at P&G, the least entrepreneurial place probably I've ever been. And I never dreamed that that kind of training would echo back in my own entrepreneurship and my own teaching. I'm sure you've um, used that kind of approach a lot in your own brand development uh, but I so I teach in the book and in my uh, workshops. It's probably the workshop that's most in demand. It's called Bottom Up Research, and certainly in my uh, courses at Brown, how to find and validate an unmet need. Once you do that, the next step is not scaling. Remember, this is a three-step process, mm-hmm. and the one mistake that I often see people make is they try to leap from the C stage to the scale stage, just as you're saying, which is. They start to attract resources and deploy them in a direction prematurely. And the second step of the process is so critical. Once you know the problem you're going to solve, and again, that's not trivial, that's the most important part, the next stage is to solve it iteratively. And I share all sorts of interesting and fun and creative and very effective, effective backed by research approaches to solving the problem recognizing that you're not going to get the solution right the first time or maybe even the third time. And you don't want to lavish lots of resources at that stage because you're going to probably waste them. Instead, do it in a frugal way. And once you do know the solution that you're going to approach, then it is important to attract other resources, money, other talent on your team and other things that you can use to scale that solution. But it has to be uh, a three-step process, not a two-step process. So starting with the first uh, step, C, I'm so curious. I mean, I guess first, could you define it for everybody? Uh, What is C? Um, The obvious is probably there a little bit, but I'd I'd love to get some clarity clarity on that. And then part two of that question really is, how do you know that you should go from C to solve. There might actually be some cases where you don't, right? You're right. Yeah, really, really good um, question and insight. And, you know, I'd say 
The thing that the C stage is trying to do mostly uh, is to help you avoid being what I call a solution in search of a problem. And I see that quite a lot in the tech world, not only, but remember, I'm my uh, faculty appointment is in engineering. And so I'm surrounded by really smart tech people who think they've got a solution to something just because they dreamed it up in their lab. And so I teach you how to do what I call uh, bottom-up research. It's being an anthropologist. It's observing and listening to people behave naturally in their own environments without looking to intervene or change their behavior at this stage so that you can find and validate an unmet need. So you can really understand the problem that you're then going to uh, pursue a solution to. But the biggest problem I see across the board in entrepreneurship is that there's a lot of solutions in search of a problem. Yeah. It teams that just don't know how to be an anthropologist, how to listen really well, how to keep your eyes open, keep your mouth shut. And uh, I, I uh, go through several examples, including one from a student team now called Premama that wanted to do something in the nutrition space. I had them go do some bottom-up research, observe people in the nutrition aisles at uh, Whole Foods, and they discovered an insight that they never would have discovered otherwise, which was that women hate taking prenatal vitamins. They didn't even know what a prenatal vitamin was. Um, they learned, and they discovered that women hate them because they're big, tough to swallow, they exacerbate their nausea, they make them constipated, they're obvious when they're toting them around as these big bottles. And they uh, instead, they learned that there was a different way to deliver this prenatal vitamin. I put them in touch with some product development people. They raised well over $10 million. They're now um, among the leaders in the field of prenatal vitamin, having reformulated them into powders that you can dispense into any beverage of your choice tastes good, not hard to swallow, doesn't make you nauseated or constipated. You can use them discreetly and not broadcast to the world that you're looking to get pregnant or already get pre or pregnant. That form of bottom-up research was the basis of that first insight that helped them discover the problem. And it also became the basis of a whole range of line extensions that they've done through the years to learn what uh, especially women are facing at different stages of their uh, lives and they've figured out solutions to address those problems. But there's no way they would have known those problems if they had just dreamed up some kind of prenatal vitamin in a, in a lab. They had to figure out what the problem was first. Definitely. So is that really, I mean, it almost crosses over into the solve section, right? What you're talking about? I mean, is that really? It does. Yeah, I covered kind of both. The first question was, what's the problem? And they discovered that women hate taking prenatal vitamins. That was the problem. And then once I gave them access to um, some product development people I know, they iterated. And, and iterated is the right word, by the way, and you'll be an expert in this far more than I will. At first, their, the name of their product was going to be pre-water. Huh. And they were going to bottle beverages that contained prenatal vitamin elements then they did some more research, they bounced it off of consumers, and they realized for a variety of reasons, all of which I'm sure you know better than I, uh, it was a terrible idea. Logistically, uh, it was going to be very hard and expensive to bottle the beverages They were going to break uh, on shelves. No reason to impose on 
um, a young uh, woman who was getting pregnant or pregnant to carry around a bottle. Uh, instead, they they created these little now patented powder packets that you can, again, dispense into any beverage of your choice. But they that wasn't their first solution. Mm -hmm. Their first solution was one that was just not ideal or maybe not even viable. They didn't layer a lot of resources on that first one. They created a few prototypes. And it was only in that iteration, in that solve stage, that they realized bad idea. And I always say it's so much better to realize you've got a flaw in the blueprint stage or in the model stage of building a house, then once you've built the house and have put a lot of effort and time and money into it. And, um, and so that's what they did. They found the problem through bottom-up research. They iterated through a number of the techniques that I share, mm -hmm. nominal group technique, which enables you to uh, incorporate insights from both introverts and extroverts, different personality types, uh, deliver lots of different kinds of approaches a different approach called uh, systematic inventive thinking, all of which I cover in detail in the book, as you know. And and then they got to the scale stage where they raised, um, you know, again, uh, over $10 million in venture capital, and they're um, starting to dominate some of these niches. But Premama is a good example of all three. And I know you wanted me to focus on the first. And to me, it's a really good example of... Um, all three of stages being, and... Yeah, but but sensitive especially to the idea of the C stage to figure out what problem to solve in the first place. Well, you touched on the scale section. Uh, you also touch on in the book where entrepreneurs often have a hard time thinking big. Why do you think that is? I mean, here they are. They've they've got all the research. I mean, it's a, it's a confidence issue, right? Or maybe they've you know learned that it should be another way or something. And then, but it really boils down to confidence, don't you think? I think part of it is that, yeah. And part of it is, let's face it, if you're a, you know, in my class, at least an 18 to 22 year old, the idea of a big company might be a cafe, yeah. uh, you know, just adjoining campus, right? I mean, that's big. You don't know any better. Nobody has stretched your mind. I, I, I talk a lot and I guide you through some exercises here to break what's called mental fixedness where your mind is set on a certain approach with bias based on our life trajectory to that point. And so it's no one's fault. This is, again, one of these cognitive biases that I warn you against. And I, so in my class, at least, to break your mental fixedness, I require you in your business plans to do research that can credibly project a venture doing over $100 million in revenue in year five. And that really does break your mental fixedness. So some of it is confidence, just like you say. Some of it is you just don't know any better. You don't know that it's you're capable like um, Casper or like Imperfect Foods at the time that I wrote the book. In fact, I had Ben Chesler, my student founder of uh, co-founder of Imperfect Foods, write that section in the book because he would know it better. You know, they they had... Uh, raised over a, over $200 million in venture capital. They had over $250 million in uh, annual revenue. They had 43 states represented and they had 1,500 employees. His favorite stat is that they had saved over 100 million pounds of food that would have gone to waste. Yeah, Ben in my class, I think, did learn that he was able to stretch his mind 
probably, as you say, with more confidence, but also breaking that mental fixedness in a way that he wasn't biased to think, oh, well, a big company does a million dollars. No, a big company for him was doing quarter of a billion dollars, and they've gotten to be even bigger and have merged with another company. So it's really important to think big. Why? Well, we're talking about identifying and then solving very consequential problems. Like Emma Butler, I mentioned with Liberare, solving fashion issues that are uh, besetting uh, or plaguing women who have different shaped bodies, uh, health problems. There's a company that came from our uh, center called Perennial that was just featured on the front cover of Time that is helping farmers all over the world optimize carbon sequestration and help solve issues related to climate change. They've raised $25 million in a Series A just recently. It's important to think big because these problems are big Mm -hmm. and consequential, and we need people more than ever to solve big problems. And so it's not just because I care about, you know, bragging about these students who've done great by the numbers, but it's because we need them and we need all the people who might read this book to figure out how to identify big problems and then how how to go solve them. Well, I think what you're speaking about, too, is that you're giving them these tools. And I bet uh, when they run into challenges along the way that they come back to see solve scale, right? And so it's not just a one-way road, right? They come back to it, especially when they hit those hurdles. And that's what I loved about this toolkit. You're absolutely right. You, you know that from your own operational experience. I know that too. Uh, And then these students learn it, which is, yeah, it's not a fairy tale. It's not linear. This is, I'll use that word again, iterative again. You know, pre-mama realizes, oh, pre-water's bad idea. Oh, did they give up and throw in the towel? No, they iterated and they figured uh, pre-mama's powder packs might work. If you ask the Casper founders, it's not a fairy tale. Casper was about their fifth try in launching something Liberare used to be called something else because they had pursued a different business model approach. Yeah, this is a, um, I like your way of saying it, a toolkit that you will come back to and hold to your side and reference. And that's the intention. That's the intention behind my teaching. I've now had over 3,000 students and they're all part of an innovation network that one of my former students put together and they come back to me all the time. I would say it's rare that a week, maybe even a day goes by without my hearing from them. And that's from Brown, but it's also from my teaching in Israel and in Palestine and in Jordan and China and Bahrain and all over the world. And it's a pleasure to be in touch with them because they're pursuing opportunities to change the world. And they're doing so recognizing that it is not easy. But the the subtitle of the book, I think is important to mention, it's Seesaw Scale, how anyone can turn an unsolved problem into a breakthrough success and underscores anyone because the idea is to empower people, just like you said before, as you were making that very kind introduction, that don't necessarily conform to the stereotypical entrepreneur that many of us had been led to believe was the only people who could do entrepreneurship. And yet we know the numbers are pathetic. Mm -hmm. Only 2% of venture-backed startups are women. Only 1.5 are Latinx founders. Only 1% are Black founders. 
we have a long way to go to empower all types of entrepreneurs from every different kind of background. And that's part of the mission of my teaching, of the Nelson Center, and of this book, to empower anybody to turn an unsolved problem into a breakthrough success. Yeah, definitely. Well, I absolutely love that. And there's so many other things in the book. I mean, you talk about having diversity on teams, which is huge, and not just diversity as we know it, but also diverse thinking and being able to have challenges along uh, within your team, I think is absolutely critical. And I loved that you included that. What would you say is kind of the thing that you hear, the the entrepreneur of the future? I feel like you're in in sort of the hotbed. What do you feel like they're looking at right now as kind of categories that are sort of the ones that they want to go and disrupt, improve in the world? Well, you know, I had the pleasure of interacting with good people like that all day long. And it's why I'm forever grateful to that former professor of mine, Barrett Hazeltine, for that unexpected tap on the shoulder. I mean, who knows what else I might have been doing along the way, but mostly I've been teaching for the last 17 years. And 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 also I'm what's called a professor of the practice. So I continue to practice yeah. and I'm continuing to, you know, help launch things and advise them. I'm probably not full time in any of them. What's amazing to be able to do this at Brown, and I see this in all the workshops I do around the world, is that there's a strong thirst to solve consequential problems. And, uh, you know, there's, it sounds like you'd you'd like me to target a, a handful, but it's hard to do because there's a very wide range, whether it's some of the obvious ones that we desperately need to be solved, like climate change issues, issues related to healthcare, um, issues related to systemic anti-black racism, you know, we could easily make a long list of the obvious problems, but sometimes it's interesting to see the non-obvious problems that students by nature of their passion and interest are, are pursuing. In fact, you know, that's the, that's one of the principles of the book that I hear about a lot that people are resonating to, which is this Japanese word, Ikigai. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard mm-hmm. that phrase, but um, it was actually Marin, my daughter, who turned me on to it. She was doing some training for um, uh, being a counselor at a camp. And she learned this word Ikigai and came to me and said, Dad, I think this is a principle that you've been teaching, even if you didn't know the word. Ikigai is a Japanese word that means living a life of purpose or of meaning. And it has these four principles. And I, I try to guide my students and anyone else I talk to about this. The four principles are do something you're really good at. You might call that drive. Do something that you really love to do. You might call that passion. Do something that's going to add purpose or meaning to the world. We might call that purpose. And then do something, yeah, that's going to pay you fairly for the value you're adding. And so I, I try to be a little bit agnostic about you know, favoring particular areas or industries or problems. I think it's really important for any entrepreneur, and I share some examples of this where people didn't follow this and pursued opportunities that were a little bit more academic and didn't succeed. And it's really when you have a combination of all four of those ikigai elements that I think you're more likely to succeed as an entrepreneur or as anyone else. Do something that you're really good at. Do something that you're really going to love to do. Do something that's going to add meaning or purpose to the world. And yeah, do something that's going to pay you fairly. And that will vary by individual or by groups, no matter where you come from, what you've studied, 
what race or gender or personality type you might be. The whole point of my teaching is to empower a much wider group of entrepreneurs who've been ignored or neglected or in some cases discriminated against. And so I, I tend to dodge that question a little bit That's okay. because it's really not up to me to guide those students toward a particular field. You know, the pre-mama founders, it turns out, were four guys, four athletes, and they knew nothing about prenatal vitamins. They were certainly never going to be a consumer of them, at least as far as I know. Uh, eventually, they diversified their team in the way that I think I, I talk about in the um, the book. But it was so great for them to be turned on to a problem that they knew nothing about. And again, benefits of scarce resources. I think it's because of that that they were able to see potential solutions to those problems in ways that the people who were real experts in them had lots of money and all sorts of other um, abundant resources weren't. So I love seeing students from all different backgrounds and types pursue what they really are good at, what they care about, what's going to help improve the world and what's going to make them money. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that is such great advice. And uh, for sure, everybody pick up this book. It's definitely your gift to entrepreneurs because it's unbelievably valuable and really helps anyone think about how to go launch something for so many people that I mentor that, you know, just don't really have the confidence to go do something or maybe aren't sure whether or not something should become a product just to really take your book. And, you know, it's like I said, I think it's a toolkit and it's really, really valuable. So the, the only two last quick things I'll mention is there's a lot of guidance for people who are in big organizations too, like big companies, big nonprofits, government agencies, universities, who desperately need to know how to identify, solve and scale a problem and may be burdened by their abundant resources. So it's not only for, yeah. you know, the pure early stage startup. And then I'm agnostic about whether it has to be a company, a business. Um, there's lots of examples in there about researchers. And again, people from all different walks of life. And what's been gratifying is I'm hearing from all of them. I was on a military podcast, and that's attracted interest from the Air Force, where I've recently done some uh, workshops, some big companies who've asked me to do workshops. I didn't necessarily expect it would resonate so clearly and closely with um, people at that end of the spectrum, but it's gratifying that they are. And um, I'm, I'm eager to learn more about the ways that it is. It's a pleasure to interact with you. Again, somebody who is such an expert in uh, your own right and um, I'm honored to have been asked to be on uh, your podcast today. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Danny. And we'll have all the info in the show notes so you can uh, reach Danny and hear more about it and also the book details too. So have a great rest of the week. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. Please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, 
But achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.